ask you to open your Bibles, please. Please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We have three more chapters, three more sermons from our series on the book of Revelation. And today we're looking at chapter 20. And uh, don't forget, baptism classes. So if you want to do baptism classes, uh, primarily in English, that's with Derek in the back room there. Derek, what time? Say about 15 minutes after church finishes, thereabouts. Uh, please meet with Derek there. And for English as another language speakers, we'll be meeting upstairs with Annie Bartlett and uh, looking at starting our first week of baptism classes up there. So we look forward to that. Right, we begin with a photo. This is a photo of a man called Fran Mirakai. He's an Albanian man, and in that photo, he is 29 years old. And Anissa Dunham shared this photo with us this week. In fact, it's her great-grandfather. And so it is the great-great-grandfather of Hugo, Henry, and Spencer. And I think I can see you guys there, right at the back there. There you are. Now, when this photo was taken, he had only weeks to live. He was born in 1916. At the, at the age of 18, he married Prina Alio, and they had three daughters together. He was a farmer, he was a merchant, and he was a lay leader in his church. And people found him to be intelligent and punctual and manly. When the communist Enver Hoxha came to power in 1944, he launched a fierce persecution of church leaders because they were the, the intellectuals in Albania. They were the stewards of Albanian culture. And they posed a serious threat to communist lies and communist rule. And so they arrested Fran Mirakai on Christmas Eve in 1945. They tortured him and he was put on trial for his life. And this photo was taken at his trial. He wears a traditional Albanian kalesh on his head, knitted from white wool. When I first saw that, I thought it might have been Muslim headgear, but it's not. It's traditional Albanian headgear. And he's not wearing his best coat. I'm told that he had a friend bring his, an older coat so that he wouldn't look showy in the courtroom. Look carefully at his face. Look carefully at his body language. He looks much older than his 29 years, doesn't he? There's suffering in those eyes, yet they are bright and clear. He's looking up through the downward tilt of his head and he's being calm, respectful, but you see firmness there, don't you? There's a firmness in that face. He's reasoning with the court. His hand is emphasising some important point. In fact, he's explaining why he'd rather die than deny his faith. That's not the picture of a broken man, is it? That's a picture of a man in command of himself and at peace with his awful circumstances. On the 22nd of February, 1946, they sentenced him to death and he was shot 10 days later. Six others perished with him. Their bodies were thrown into, the, into a river. An anti-Christian state 
persecuted these people with torture and death. Thanks, Raf. We can turn that off now. The first readers of the book of Revelation, like the man we've just been looking at, were persecuted by their society. They were persecuted by their state. They lost family members. They lost their homes. They lost livelihoods. Many were tortured, beheaded, crucified. Some were even thrown into an arena where wild lions and other animals ate them, killed them and ate them. Yet, the church was not vanquished. The first readers of this book were severely persecuted, yet they were not vanquished. Like Fran Mirakai, they suffered, yet they remained calm, respectful and undaunted. And today you're going to learn from Revelation chapter 20 why suffering Christians are like that. You're going to learn from this remarkable chapter that Christians can and must face suffering with calm and confidence and even joy. And we will see this morning from Revelation 20 why Christians will be a light to the world, a world that has no real hope when they face suffering and hardship with that kind of calmness and joy. Revelation 20 describes a millennium. Millennium just means a thousand years. Describes a millennium between the time of Jesus' first and second coming. Another word that describes the period between Jesus' first and second coming is the last days. The millennium, the last days. It's the time in which we now live. And Revelation 20 shows us, in four parts, Jesus' complete defeat of evil. First of all, we see that in the millennium, Satan is bound. Look there at Revelation chapter 20, where John, in this vision, says that I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Now we are at the final three chapters of the book of Revelation. Where do these three chapters, Revelation 20, 21, 22, where do these chapters fit in with the rest of the book? Well, I hope you've seen by now that Revelation describes the last days, the, that age between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. It describes those last days seven times over. It cycles through them seven times. And this is the seventh and final iteration, the seventh and final symbolic description of the last days. 
the days in which we now live as we wait for Jesus' second coming. And this scripture passage teaches us that when Jesus came to inaugurate this age, the last days, that Satan was bound. We see a great angel and he holds the key to the abyss, he holds the key to hell. In other words, he decides who enters and exits and a large chain. And there are five words that describe the thoroughness of Satan's captivity. He seized the dragon, bound him, threw him into an abyss and locked and sealed it over him. Now, what, what does this mean? What's the significance of Satan being bound? Well, it tells us there that his binding prevents him from deceiving the nations. See, we've got this picture of this great angel coming with a big chain and he binds Satan, throws him into the abyss, covers it, locks it. For what purpose? So that Satan, the dragon, will not be deceiving the nations. Now, in order to understand that, we need to put this in context with the rest of Scripture. The Bible teaches us that until Jesus' first coming, the nations were fully under Satan's control. You've got God's people, Israel, under God's rule, but all the rest of the nations are under the rule of Satan. And they're deceived by him, unable to find God's forgiveness and salvation. And the Bible teaches us that when Jesus came, when Jesus took on flesh, when he was born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, that when Christ Jesus entered the world from heaven, that Satan was bound. The coming of Christ brought the binding of Satan. His arms were tied. He was now powerless to prevent salvation and forgiveness and mercy from going out into the world. And he was bound for a millennium, a thousand years. And we've been studying Revelation for some time now, and we know that it is full of symbols and symbolic numbers. And this 1,000, it doesn't refer to a literal length of of 1,000 years, but it refers to the character of this age, this age between the first and the second coming of Christ. And some have explained this number 1,000 like this, that seven is the number of perfection and completeness, and, and, and three is God's number, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and we put those two together, we get 10. And then we multiply it by itself. And then we multiply it by itself again. And we have this number 1,000, a superlative representation of God's covenant love and mercy. The 1,000 is not referring to a literal length of time. It's referring to the greatness of God and the greatness of God's love and mercy. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 7 where Moses said, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to 
a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. And we see the same kind of thing in Psalm 105, verses 8 to 9. The Lord remembers his covenant forever. The word he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. And so this, this number, a thousand, what it's saying is that, is that when Christ came, the devil was bound and the devil could no longer hinder the, the mercy, the love, the grace of God going to all four corners of the world. It's referring to the greatness of God's mercy. And we know that when Jesus came, that he did indeed bind Satan. Remember the miracles of Christ, how he gave sight to the blind and how he turned water into wine and how he walked on the water. But remember also how he freed people from demonic possession. Time and again, Jesus came to people who were seized by demons and he released them from that. He exorcised those demons. And Jesus explained that. He explained the significance of those miracles. He said, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, and I'm reading from Matthew 12 here, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's describing those, those miracles where he's driving out demons. He's describing them as him coming and binding Satan so that he can plunder Satan's goods. And who are... What are those goods? They are people. He's come to free people from the devil and from the rule of the devil. And this is what Revelation 20 is teaching us, brothers and sisters. It's teaching us that in these last days in which we live, this time of tribulation, in this millennium age, the devil is bound and Jesus was able to say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's the wonderful teaching of chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And I've, I've spent most time on those three verses. I'm going to be going a little more quickly through the rest of that chapter. But here's that wonderful teaching. That in the age in which we live, this this time where the church is under pressure, under persecution, and there's suffering. It's a time, nevertheless, when Satan is bound and nothing can hinder the good news from going to all four corners of the world. But what about those people, like Fran Mirakai, who were put to death during that time? And you can imagine, can't you, that the first readers of the book of Revelation would be reading about the millennium and the binding of Satan and nothing can hinder the gospel going out. And they're thinking, yes, but our people are dying. Our people are suffering. And some are being beheaded. And some are being tortured and some are being thrown to the lions. What about them? 
What good is the millennium to them? How does it help those who are dead in Christ? Well, verses 4 to 6 teach us that in the millennium, Christians who die go to reign with Christ. Look there at verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. In other words, those who had been persecuted, those who had been martyred. And they had not worshipped the beast or its image. They had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. So here's that, that thousand years again, that, that millennium. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And the wonderful teaching of this passage is that when a Christian dies, whether peacefully or violently, their souls go immediately to be with Jesus Christ. The Bible does not teach a soul sleep. It does not teach that when Christians die, they go to sleep for however long, however long it takes before Christ returns. They go immediately to be with Christ, into his living presence, Remember Stephen, the first martyr. And as he died, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Christ was there, and, and Stephen saw it standing there, ready to receive him into his presence, ready to receive him into heaven. And this beautiful passage teaches us that the circumstances of suffering Christians are completely reversed at their deaths. Those who are put to death are made alive. Those for whom God were, was invisible, now they see him face to face as priests. And the priests were those who had access to God. And those who die in Christ have that same access. Those who were condemned by the world now sit with Christ to judge the world. Those who were despised by the world now reign with Christ as kings. And that's why heaven says that those who die in Christ are blessed and holy. And that word blessed, it means they are the happy ones. They're the ones to be congratulated. Those who have died in Jesus Christ. Now I hope you see that what this means is that the church exists in two different states and the theologians talk about the church militant and what's the other state? The church triumphant. It's right here in Revelation 20. The church militant. That's you. It's a time of war. It's a time of struggle. It's a time of hardship, of resistance. A time of taking the gospel out against opposition. 
when we talk about the church militant, this in no way means that Christians are to become crusaders. What, a, what an absolute travesty that was. That Christians ever thought that the Bible intended them to, to pick up weapons and to go and kill people in Christ's name. It's an abomination and, and not a single word of scripture justifies that awful period. But Christians are to take out the gospel and to stand firm in a time of suffering and struggle. It's the church militant. And then when the Christian dies, they join the church triumphant. The fight is over. The struggle is over. The battle is over. It's a time of rest and enjoyment. And that's what you should be looking forward to if you belong to Christ. But Revelation 20 teaches us that this tension between the church militant and the church triumphant, it's not going to last forever. It's going to come to an end. And we see that in verses 7 to 10, which teach us that after the millennium, Christ will finally destroy Satan and his work. Look there at verse 7. When the thousand years are over, when this age is over that we now live in, this, the last days, before Christ returns, when this age is over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. And they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And this teaches us that at the end of the millennium, at the end of the last days, Satan will be unbound. And he will think, hooray, now my time has come. And he will bolt his cage and he will assemble all the forces of evil to wage war against God and to destroy the church. And Revelation refers to the battle of Gog and Magog, which appear in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, which described a terrific battle upon God's people in the Old Testament. But what do you see here? No sooner is the devil uncaged and he thinks that this is his hour, what happens immediately and effortlessly? Fire falls from heaven and he's destroyed in a moment. It's no battle at all. Satan is destroyed, it says. The devil, the beast, the pseudo-prophet, all destroyed. And this is telling the church, if you're in a time of suffering, if you're in a time of struggle, a time of persecution, hang on. You're on the winning side. Jesus' final victory is absolutely certain. And so Revelation 20 finishes with a warning. It finishes with a warning to those who are not yet 
with Jesus Christ, who don't recognise him, who don't believe in him. We read in this fourth and last section that after the millennium, that not only will Christ destroy Satan, but he'll destroy all those who belong to Satan. Look there at verse 11. And then I saw a white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And please pay attention to this. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so in this final scene in Revelation 20, we see a great white throne. It's Jesus Christ as judge. The, the throne is a, is a great one it, that, that indicates his power. It's white that indicates the purity, the perfection of his judgment. And two kinds of books were opened. Did you see that? Two kinds of books. One we could call the book of deeds. And each person has got one of these books. And the book of deeds records every thought and act. In reading a book lately about Google, the phenomenal amount of information they collect about each and every person. It's a little bit frightening, this book, about how much, if, if you're on the internet and you're carrying around your Android phone and you're using Gmail and you're watching YouTube, then there is a phenomenal amount of information they know about us. It's a little bit concerning. But this book of deeds that's described here in the book of Revelation, everything is recorded there. Your, your entire life, every, every thought is, is there. Every word is there. Every deed is there. Every emotion, every movement is recorded in that book. And we will be judged for every thought, every word, every act. This is the last judgment whether you believe in Christ or not, whether you believe in the Bible or not, whether you believe in God or not, this is what you face. Standing before the great white throne and the judge, Jesus Christ, and he will bring perfect judgment on your every deed. But the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
If we appear before the great white throne on our own and that book is opened and Christ sees every word and every deed, that is going to be a terrifying day. That's going to be an awful day and we will want the mountains to fall on us and we'll want to be in the depths of the sea so that Christ can't see us. It will be an awful day to stand before the judge of the universe when every single deed will be perfectly judged. Because all have sinned, all have rebelled, all have committed cosmic treason against our Creator and that is not going to go well for any of us. The Bible teaches us here, the Word of God teaches that those who belong to the devil go where the devil goes, to the lake of burning fire. Praise God that there's another book. There's another book, and it's called the Book of Life. And if your name is in that book, your evil deeds will not be counted against you. The wrath of God will not fall on you. Because the book of life records every person for whom Jesus Christ died. It records every person whose sin was taken by the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who died on the cross on Calvary 2,000 years ago. Everyone in the book of life can stand before Christ on that day, not with dread, but with joy. Because you know, the judgment has already been taken by the Son of God on Calvary. So you need to be in the book of life. I need to be in the book of life. What a, what a dreadful thing to, to stand before the great white throne and not to have your name in the book of life and, and to see that, that, that lake of burning fire and to know that, that that's where you're going. That's where you're going if you're not in the book of life. You need to be in the book of life. And if you know that, do not ask I wonder whether I'm in it or not. Right now, that's not what you should be thinking. Right now, what you should be thinking is, I must listen to Christ, who commands me to turn from my sin and rebellion and to turn to him and to trust in him and to receive his salvation and his cleansing and his forgiveness and mercy. And if you turn from your sin and turn to Christ, then you can know that your name is written in the book of life. And you can look to that great judgment, not with dread, but with joyful expectation. You need to be in the book of life. Now, if you are in the book of life, know that trouble will come. Trouble will come. Jesus said that no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But let me finish by saying that if you belong to Christ, 
don't respond to those troubles with panic, with fear, with complaining. You're on the winning side. Show that you're on the winning side. And, and, and that's what I love about that picture of Fran Mirakai. It's a man who's being persecuted, but it's a man who's standing with firmness and calm and confidence. He knows it's not going to go well for him, but he's standing calm. This should be our posture towards persecution. And if this should be our post posture towards persecution, how much more should it be our posture when we face the troubles that everyone faces? And Christian men and women, boys and girls, if we do that, if we face the troubles of this life as we should, with, without fear and panic, but with calmness and confidence and joy in Christ, then in a world of, 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 of hopelessness, in a world that, that, that has nothing to look forward to after death, your hope will shine out. In a world of victimhood, resilience, buoyancy is attractive and we have that resilience in Jesus Christ. We live in the millennium but Satan is bound. His persecuted victims will reign. He'll be destroyed. And so we can respond to persecution and hardship with confidence and praise. Amen.